Hi everyone, welcome to another edition of the Anantech podcast. This is podcast of CES 2018. I'm your host Ian Cutris, and joining me today is the always delightful Ryan Smith, Senior Editor, Editor-in-Chief, sorry. Yes, Editor-in-Chief, aka your boss. And also joining us today is our uh, Senior Mobile Editor, Andre Fumashanu. How's it going? And you know, CES, every year, Las Vegas, 180,000 um, of the tech industry, we come, we talk tech, we look at all the new things that are coming out through 2018 and we ask what went right and what went wrong with 2017. This week has been particularly interesting because it's actually rained in the desert here in Vegas this week. But we want to start today in the podcast uh, talking about you know the major headlines that came out, especially during the first week about CES. We're going to save talking about Meltdown and Spectre for um, another podcast, uh, just because that is something that is still very much in flux, and we all want to get our teeth into the meat of what's happening. Um, but I do want to start with Intel, because Intel had the keynote of the show. Uh, they hired out the um, massive theater in Monte Carlo, if mm, I remember correct. correctly, Ryan. Um, this was uh, CEO Brian Krasanich on stage for the best part of two hours, describing how Intel is in many technologies. The, the, the event itself was very visual. They made it like a Vegas stage production. Correct. They they had dancers where the scene around them was interacting to how they dance. They had AI creating jazz. They had drones playing a piano. Yeah. The the the, the key was it, the keynote was very much on you know the visual aspect of what Intel is doing. Brian Sandwich did spend a couple of minutes talking about security issues, but it was very quickly onto uh, how Intel is doing lots of um, basically compute. It's not necessarily, I mean, Intel is a manufacturing company. You expect them to talk about manufacturing, but this is a consumer show. So they're talking about ways in which their hardware was be bought to the consumers. And the biggest one, the biggest way they did this was through sports. Um, having multiple cameras in a sports hall, not only being able to put you into within VR into the sports arena in any seat you wanted, but also the ability to calculate the position of everything in the arena with many cameras by using voxels rather than pixels. Now, everybody's familiar with pixels on a screen being a 2D representation, but voxels are a 3D representation of color and physical... I don't want to be explaining this because, Ryan, you're the GPU guy. Voxels have been around for decades. Voxels have been around for decades. I, I was going to say compare voxels to Legos, but with this audience, I think compare voxels to Minecraft and you've got about the right idea. I mean, the whole idea with Intel here was that throughout the uh, throughout a sports game, uh, they could uh, essentially put you in any camera position pointed in any direction and you could see the entirety um, of what was going on. So if that meant, you know, the helmet of a running back um, or uh, the knee as, uh, you know, the, as a tight end got smashed in by the defensive end, you could do that. And they also applied this to um, filmmaking where they said they shot a Western scene and you could either be, you could be the cowboy, you could be the bandit, you could be the bullet, or you could be the horse. Well, it's not so much you could be, but you could see this view from all of those. Yes, it, correct. They're essentially recreating the scene in 3D using voxel representations rather than, you know, poly polygonal representations. 
And that's just a matter of having uh, enough pseudo-accuracy to represent everything as voxels. So, I mean, they, 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 they were using, um, I mean, with, with the film scene, they were using 100 cameras. They were using that to calculate the points, and they were essentially filling in the blanks with AI. I mean, this is, in, Intel's big thing is we're massive on compute. This is a compute-heavy task, which improves um, a user experience in a new way, and that's been Intel's thing for several years now. How can we use what we have to build a better experience now? The question is, if they're going to get any customers, if this is going to drive revenue, this sort of technology is usually three to five years out from ever being commercialized. But this is something that they always like to promote in these keynotes. Is there a real 3D? Oh, excuse me, not real 3D. What, what do they call this technology now? Real? Uh, TrueView. TrueView. There we go. Yeah. So TrueView has been around in one form or another for a few years now. I don't really consider it cutting edge, but they continue to iterate on it and they continue to have sports partnerships with it. So Intel is... Uh, Continue to trudge right along. Two, two other parts about the Intel keynote were about their sort of emerging computing technologies that uh, are kind of a bit hard to quantify. So the first one is called uh, Loihi. That's L-O-I-H-I. This is their neuromorphic processor, which is essentially designed to have a processor that acts like a bunch of neurons, like in a brain. There are kind of versions like this that already exist uh, for example, there's one based on an ARM9 core called Spinnaker, and that is a computer that takes up a room but has, you know, uh, several hundred thousand neurons, um, and it's this weird architecture. But Intel is basically saying, we can do something like that, but better, stick it on a single chip, and away you go. Now, I actually had... Uh, it was weird. I was on the show floor at Intel's booth uh, for one of their breakfast presentations, and I just happened to come across Brian Krasanich. Um He was just wandering the show floor, and as a member of the press, it's kind of rare to get hold of a CEO, so I managed to grab him for a couple of minutes. Um, I asked him, uh, one of the questions I asked him was about this neuromorphic technology, you know, now, now you guys have a working chip in the lab, you know, because this is such an esoteric paradigm to program for, there's going to be at some stage in which uh, they're going to have to start training people, they're going to have to start doing development programs if they want this to be sort of like a big research chip for high-performance compute for the things that it's designed for. He said, yeah, that sounds about right, but we're several years out, perhaps a decade. <laughs> yeah, it's very much a research project right now. Um, the other thing they had was their new next-generation quantum processor. Um, so they're moving from 17 qubits to 49 qubits. This is, you know, in itself, quantum processors, in order to work, they need to be cooled to near zero Kelvin. Um, and one of the things uh, we also learned was that in order just to calculate the way the I.O. is handled within the processor, the, just to handle the integrity of the data, you need a supercomputer behind it, mm. which requires you know many megawatts of power plus your uh, quantum chip. Now, there are a few players dealing in quantum chips. The big one, commercial one at the minute, is D-Wave. But we've also got IBM. So, th again, this is a, just another technology that Intel is putting into research. Uh, one thing they didn't mention at the keynote, um, which is which is kind of big in our space, is uh, Intel's new collaboration. Well, it's not a collaboration. It's a business partnership with AMD um, for the new uh, KB Lake G processors. So this is Intel putting one of their one of their H-series processors plus an AMD Radeon Vega uh, graphics die 
and HBM2 on the same chip. So what Intel are doing are essentially they're buying uh, specialized Vega chips from AMD's semi-custom unit, um, sticking it onto the same package. Um, so you have a, a multi-chip package and then bundling that as a single CPU plus GPU plus high-performance memory solution, um, which is going to be in uh, processors that come up to 65 watts and 100 watts. And there's been uh, uh, two laptop and two laptop announcements from HP and Dell, and Intel are going to stick it in the next Hades Canyon Nook. So, I mean, this in itself is the the way I described it in the way we wrote the piece is you know Intel and AMD are now the best of frenemies. They're friends when it suits them. They're enemies when they have to compete. They compete in x86, but this is one situation where um, Intel felt they. It, they, the market they were targeting would be better served by buying a graphics processor from AMD rather than scaling up one of their own designs. Yeah, and saying Intel thought it might, they might be better served is probably putting a little too nice of a spin on it. <laughs> I mean, they have to have had some pressure from the OEM, especially the fruit company in California, to get something like this to happen. But it's it's here. Uh, it's being adopted by HP, Dell. It'll be a matter of time until we see Apple do it. So there's definitely a market for it, and uh, it should be interesting to see what comes of it. Well, uh, Apple's always been pushing um, AMD graphics in their um, professional designs, and you know iOS is built heavily upon OpenCL. So it makes sense that if Intel can't provide the graphics solution themselves with their own graphics technology, that they use AMD to help fill that gap to help Apple along. Now, I've heard this chip is actually fairly expensive for OEMs, and the one company that's likely to be able to amortize that cost is Apple. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. You've got the full cost of a four-core KB Lake CPU, plus the cost of what's essentially one-half to one-third of a Radeon Vega 10 GPU, plus a stack of HBM2, plus the EMIT, plus everything else that goes into packaging that. So it's very much a unique chip. It's going to be lower volume chip and that's going to make it extra expensive. Uh, they, they gave us prices on the uh, the on the Intel Nooks, the Hades Canyon designs. The uh, So the Nooks with the 65-watt processor are coming first. And as a bare bones package, so minus DRAM and storage, that'll be 799 US. And then the full 100-watt unlocked overclockable processor will be 999. So once you add memory and storage into it, say in, you know, a good NVMe storage drive, you're easily looking at thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars, which for a mini PC is actually really expensive. It is. Well, in this specific case, that's not entirely Intel's fault, because right now we're going through a really terrible NAND shortage and RAM shortage. So there's a reason why it adds four hundred dollars to the cost of your system, but at the same time, yeah, you're you're right. The total price tag is a bit of a sticker shock. I mean, you you essentially um, you're paying for a little bit of technology, the size. And you know the ability to have the latest thing on the market, but if you had that much money, you could easily build a gaming machine <laughs> with yeah, a lot very, more. It's very much a play in miniaturization, and that always costs extra. Now, speaking of AMD, I want to move over to uh, AMD's Tech Day that they held this week. They flew a number of the press out to uh, to Vegas a couple of days before the show to essentially go through what I think is one of the actually one of the highlights of my of my show. Um, so AMD had a massive year last year with the launch of uh, Ryzen and the launch of Vega, 
you could argue that if that launch, if those launches failed, we wouldn't necessarily have an AMD right now. Um, but fortunes are on up, revenues are up. They're even in the black. They are. So um, this, so compared to last year's tech day, where it was all preparation for Ryzen, this is now post, you know, the sort of Ryzen honeymoon, and they kind of nipped it, nipped it in the bud straight away by basically saying, "Here is our 2018 roadmap." Now, it's been a while since I've seen a company launch essentially what is their next 12 months or announce what is their next 12 months of products. Yes and no. AMD's always been fairly straightforward, perhaps not in this fashion, but, you know, we've had their GPU roadmaps going on for a couple of years now, well, for a couple of years now. But on well, the CPU side, it's always been, they've always had a roadmap, but it's always been somewhat generic. This is a little more precise than what we're used to getting, which is a pleasant change. Well, I mean, they've had their sort of, you know, three-year out to 2020 roadmaps where it's been vague, but this time they said, well, okay, in um, the first quarter of this year, we're going to launch uh, the rest of Ryzen Mobile, we're going to launch uh, desktop APUs. Um, in the second quarter, we're going to launch Zen Plus, so on uh, 12 nanometer rather than Global Foundry's 14 nanometer, so that's going to be iterative process updates to um, be more power efficient. Um, and a new platform, and then in the second half of the year, they're going to introduce um, Threadripper based on the uh, based on Zen Plus, and also um, APUs, if I remember correctly, on Zen Plus as well. Correct. So, as a CPU roadmap, that's kind of, that's kind of that's kind of crazy. I mean, I, I I think it's great that they're telling us you know when exactly we're getting the rest of Ryzen Mobile. I mean, then it's up to the OEMs to actually make those laptops. Uh, we're going to get Ryzen APUs, um, you know, a Ryzen 5 and a Ryzen 3, a cost of 169 and a cost of 99. Hey, you can get a Ryzen-based APU for 100 bucks, and it comes with a cooler. That is a pretty good deal. That's um, the specs and the price point, put it in a nice situation. Um, I was actually meeting with AMD today, and I was asking continuously, you know, when are my samples coming? When are my samples coming? Um, yeah, soon. Uh, I, I think uh, launch for that is February 12th. Going to be a busy few weeks ahead. I'm going to have to prepare for that. All right. Also also on the roadmap uh, was on the graphics side. Now, they the graphics for 2018 for AMD is going to be a little more um, sedate. They essentially, all, the, all they did was essentially announce two things. One, uh, Vega is coming to mobile. So they're producing um, Vega mobile graphics uh, for laptops. And that they will produce and they will be sampling to customers uh, Vega on 7 nanometers by the end of the year. Now, this is important. Yes, it is. It's very important because what has essentially been not just not said but excluded from here is any kind of 12 nanometer GPU, which is a noticeable difference because four months ago when Global Foundries announced their 12 nanometer process, AMD confirmed that they're producing 12 nanometer GPUs. And again, in earnings calls in October... They confirm those plans. So unless AMD is playing fast and loose with what they're calling GPUs in the first place, i.e. APUs, it means 12 nanometer GPUs at some point here got cancelled. Um, but they said shipping at the end of the I mean, they said shipping to customers or sampling, technically, at the end of the year. So it won't be 2018, it'll be 2019. Yeah, so for what we have instead, the 7 nanometer design, I mean, so the 7 nanometer design is coming up. It's some kind of Vega for... Uh, optimized for the ready on instinct market. It's a, every bit stands to reason that it's going to be some sort of small pipe cleaner part, uh, maybe something to take on a class of, say, the current Tesla P4, 
a small card for uh, for high density blade servers. Is, is it, it because seven nanometer is going to be so raw in that time frame? Is this essentially going to be like kind of like a mini replacement for the uh, the Instinct Mi8? Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, I mean, with a new process, you want to start off with a small chip. You want to go to a market where you can get high margins. Um, so you focus on machine learning because that's just the big thing in compute these days. And yeah, get the process ready for when all the big stuff comes. And they're relying. On, they're they're also relying on global foundries to execute. Um, yes. So it's not entirely in AMD's hands, but AMD is you know, one of Global Foundry's major partners along with IBM. They are, and AMD pretty much has to take that risk as a result. But yes, Global Foundry's, of course, struggled to develop their own 14 nanometer node and essentially failed, licensed Samsung's tech. So 7 nanometer is their next big adventure in terms of developing their own node. So we'll see how that goes. As for what it means for AMD's graphic division in the meantime, it's... Uh, Interesting time, and they've essentially ruled out anything right now that's going to be a major update to consumer graphics other than Vega Mobile. Well, shots discount Vega Mobile. That should actually be very interesting. So we're talking a uh, an integrated package like the current Vega 10, GPU dies on top of a silicon interposer, HBM2 memory stack, all in one chip, one small chip, 1.7 millimeters tall. So... Uh, a little bit bigger than the current Polaris 11 chip, but not by much. So still very, very small chip, much smaller than most high-performance laptop GPUs. So it should be an interesting product uh, for laptops. Uh, we'll know more later in the year once it launches, specifications, clocks, etc. Expect something between a third and a half of a Vega 64, basically. Yeah, and they, I mean, they showed us the chip. They wouldn't give us any specs, but it pretty much looks like half a Vega 64 based on physical size, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it was 32 CUs, but... It could be as low as, low as 24. Yeah, because there's, there's a bunch of fixed logic on there that sort of throws off those calculations, but somewhere thereabouts. So it really should be an interesting chip. I, I say that with a, hesit- a little bit of hesitation simply because that's the only thing on their consumer roadmap right now for this year. No 12 nanometer Vegas, no no replacement f- for Polaris, etc. So that's, that is the only AMD launch we know about. It, admittedly, traditionally, we don't know about any AMD launches in an official capacity, but even in an unofficial capacity, it doesn't look like there's anything else happening this year. So much gelled on the roadmap in 2017, it's kind of all gone off 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 the road uh, that's probably a bad analogy it's it just gone off to the outer rim for 2018 and it's all going to come back at some point these yeah. things are cycles yeah essentially amd has one more vega chip to pull out which will be vega mobile and then we're waiting for seven nanometer in in navi in 2019 so intel so intel had their keynote amd had their tech day um, the other big presentation of the week, especially from our side, um, was NVIDIA. And, you know, a couple of big things came out of NVIDIA. We kind of got a briefing beforehand and we learned that, um, Uber is going to be using their self-driving technology. Now that's, that, that is a big contract. It is and it isn't. So they're, Uber will be using NVIDIA technology. There's nothing in there to indicate that it's going to be exclusive use. Uber's almost certainly playing the field and trying out everyone. But, you know, it's the gateway to potentially landing the king of all Uber contracts when Uber finally gets to where it needs to be and technology gets where it needs to be in order to have their much vaunted uh, self-driving taxi fleet. Now, with self-driving and automotive, we've seen uh, NVIDIA over the past year, over the past uh, 
couple of years talk about their SOCs and talk about how they're implementing them. And um, back last year, they announced uh, DrivePX Pegasus, which was two Xavier SOCs and two next-gen GPUs. Now, as part of the presentation, they showed off a die shot of the Xavier SOC, which is built on TSMC 12 nanometer. It's coming in at 9 billion transistors underneath 350 square millimeters. And, you know, I just want to run through some of the things here because it's kind of odd to hear, to, odd to hear about all these things in, in, a, in, a, in the same SOC. So we've got um, eight ARM cores um, called Carmel cores. These are 10-wide superscalar cores. Uh, they, it's rated at 2700 spec in uh, 2000. They're doing something called dual execution mode, uh, parity ECC. They've got um, a voltage, it, it's even got a voltage GPU inside, um, with multi-precision, 512 CUDA cores, uh, 20 tensor cores, that's, uh, Nvidia's special 4x4x4 calculation uh, matrix for, um, deep learning. They've got, uh, video processors that, uh, go, you know, almost up to 2 gigapixels per second decode. Uh, they support, uh, gigabit Ethernet and 10 gigabit Ethernet. They've got other uh, mini processors and ISPs that do even more tops. We're going to have to dig our teeth into this because this is an SOC that contains a lot of technology um, which we rarely, if ever, see together, plus also adds a new few independent things. I mean, when was the last time you heard about a 10-wide ARM core? Uh, never. Nobody. I think NVIDIA Denver was 7-wide. Denver was seven wide. Um, Apple's and, latest ones were... Well, can't really talk about it, but they're also quite wide by now. Yeah. So. I, I mean, the benefits of going wide is that you can potentially do more if the instruction stream is yeah, there. Yeah, but we, we still don't know actually if this is like a, a pure uh, ARM-based architecture or if it's, again, something similar like Denver where they do translation... Yeah. So we do and something to keep in mind here in the target market for this. This is the first chip to come out of NVIDIA that is only for NVIDIA. NVIDIA, as far as has been discussed, will not be licensing uh Xavier to anybody as just the chip, but as part of a e larger platform, you will become a NVIDIA customer. This isn't going to be for somebody to say integrate into a, a, a smartphone, for example, this sure. is not in the NVIDIA yeah, SOC. Yeah, yeah. This is an automotive SOC. This is built to be the cornerstone of all their automotive efforts. So everything we see here, core design, GPU design, inputs, the fact that it's 350 square millimeters is all based on the fact that uh, they're building the brains of an automobile. I mean, NVIDIA's uh, goal here is uh, we build a package and then we sell a package with the software, with the SDKs, to the various automotive companies as opposed to, say, pairing with one specific company and going in deep integration. I mean, they're talking with all of them. They yes. they, they, they know what they want, so they're trying to do almost a one-size-fits-all um, package here. I mean, they, I mean, this is going to be essentially the brains for Pegasus, which is a level four autonomous. Level five. Pegasus oh, oh, this is, is a, this is a, this is a level five one. Yes, yeah. Xavier is level four. Pegasus is meant to be a complete level five service for robo taxis. It's yeah, something we're gonna. It, it, it's one of the things. It's the technology underneath is what excites us. Even though technically we're never gonna get be able to get our teeth into it physically, we can only talk about it in 
a very contextual way. Yes. But that's, that, that's Xavier. Um, Nvidia also talked about, um, their BFG display technology. I mean, Ryan, you, you, you saw this. I mean, I, I saw one in the Asus booth, uh, 65 inch 4K, 120 hertz G Sync. Is that right? Correct. I mean, it's basically everything you could possibly want in a monitor in a TV size display. Now, to be technically correct here, it is not a TV. Because NVIDIA doesn't put a tuner in it, they're not actually allowed to call it a TV, yeah. but it is instead a very large display. Uh, and if you're familiar with some of NVIDIA's past projects, uh, such as last year's 4K HDR G-Sync uh, concept monitors, then this is essentially a larger version of those. So you have 4K display, fast refresh rate, G-Sync, HDR support, uh, some kind of full array of uh, local dimming lighting. They aren't confirming the number of zones yet, but you know, expect a, uh, expect a large number of zones, uh, equivalent to where you'd find on other premium TVs that are doing local dimming as well. So are, it's, are they aiming for HDR? Yes, HDR, you've got full HDR support, so. Uh, what sort of brightness did they say? Again, those, those aren't specs they're confirming right now, but. Uh, with local, full local red dimming, they can hit you know easily 400, 500 nits at, at brightness and go very dim uh, in the blacks to hit the contrast ratios required for HDR. And I, I assume you know it's okay. Just do, do, just headline: sixty-five inch, four K, one twenty hertz HDR G Sync price. To be determined, but uh, it will not be cheap. Will you buy one? Uh. Probably not. Let's wait for the 27-inch uh, 4K gaming <laughs> monitors. On which note, actually, got confirmation from NVIDIA that those 27-inch uh, G-Sync HDR monitors will be shipping this quarter. Oh. So the panels are finally ready. So uh, I'm assuming this is going to be later in the quarter here, so probably March. But yes, this quarter shipping, and then their 32-inch cousins will start shipping here a uh, little bit later in this half. Talking about exciting things during CES, so, you know, we've got you two guys here. Uh, we went around the show floor, um, you know, when it was not suffering the effects of dra- the drastic rain in the middle of the desert. Um, things that we saw on the show floor. Now, I'm going to start by saying um, something that I didn't actually see directly because I, um, I actually ran past the booth. Uh, but I um, read about LG's rollable TV, so they're using flexible OLED technology, which they showed off last year um, as sort of prototypes, but now they're actually bundling it into another 65-inch TV <laughs> um, where it's literally, it go, uh, you roll it up out of, um, or it, it's motorized, rolled up out of a, like a black box, or what was it? Is It, it was a cream box. It, they, rolled, yes. they rolled it up, and then you have, you know, essentially almost as good as you can get with a standard flat panel display OLED. And then you roll it back down again so it takes up less space. Flexible TVs, it's it's the future. Is it? Is it the future? I, I, I don't see the point, to be honest. Do, 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 you know what, do you not want, like, a flexible band around your... Yeah, like, in the smaller form factor, sure, but why do you need a flexible TV of that size? <laughs> Conceptually, it's cool. Uh, is it the future... I'm going to say this, uh, to date we have not seen anybody produce and sell a native OLED monitor or TV anywhere near that size. There have always been reliability issues that have kept uh, OLED technology, pure OLED technology uh, from being scaled up to those size, and which is why you only see WOLED TVs 
in a big size format today. So this is pure OLED, so it will be interesting to see if LG has worked out the kinks or if they just enjoy showing off flexible displays, because that has always been one of the cool things you can do with OLEDs. So I, I saw that at the show, or I, I saw people talk about it at the show anyway. Uh, Ryan, I know you had some hands-on with the new Vive Pro. I did. So the Vive Pro, so HTC announced essentially a mid-generation upgrade for the Vive family. The Vive Pro, it's aptly named, it's not a complete next-gen product, uh, but instead it takes the current Vive, upgrades the internal displays to a much higher resolution, uh, going off the top of my head here, 2880 by 1440 display, so you have around a 78% increase in pixels versus the old uh, Vive version 1. Uh, it also includes an updated version of their hedge trap mechanism that was uh, added to the Vive family late, as, later on last year as the deluxe audio strap. And it's all around a rather nice improvement over the original Vive. So uh, uh, my question is, can you still see the pixels? You can still see the pixels. Pick, uh, the screen door effect has not been eliminated. It has been reduced, uh, depending on what you're looking at in your uh, vision quality. You know, you may not even notice it, but yes, you still look at text or something, uh, you know, look at the distance. If you have good vision, you, you'll, you'll notice it, but it won't be nearly as obvious. Um, you also tried it with the um, the wireless, Intel's wireless connector. I did. So the demonstration I was using uh, was set up with wireless on that one. It worked fine. I don't... Because it's, uh, I didn't have a wired 5 Pro next to it. I couldn't really compare it side by side in that fashion. But I did have a wired 5.1 next to it. It looked absolutely fine. Didn't make a difference. But I was also very close to the transmitter, so it's not like this was a massive field test. Well, I mean, it, it uses uh, Y gig 60 gigahertz, so Correct. your range is only 10 meters anyway. Yeah, but, but in this that, case, I mean, I was standing like two feet from the yeah. PC, so. Yeah. So yeah, so it looks it looks interesting, you know, between the display improvement and the and especially the strap improvement, I really like it. I won't go on too long about the strap, but one of the biggest problems with the original Vive, the original Rift, they just are hard to get on your head. And uh, the Vive introduced their deluxe audio strap and made it a little bit better, but this one, I had no problem getting this thing on my head, and I have a very big head. <laughs> Yes, in both senses of the word, Ian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, 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 it actually, it's it's there's enough range on it to get over my head. It's designed in such a way that it's very balanced front and back, so everything fits comfortably. I mean, it's essentially like wearing a an adjustable crown around your head, so everything is so the weight is distributed around the entire head, making it very comfortable to get on and very easy to secure in place. This is where I ask how many crowns you wear in your daily life. Heavy is the crown of being the editor in chief of a non-tech. Safe answer. Um, but so, so the the deluxe strap is that um, sort of bendy one where you put it on your eyes first and bend down. Is no, the, the, the deluxe audio strap is essentially. Uh, so there's a knob in the back that you twist. Oh, that yeah. 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 So it ex either extends or retracts uh, retracts the straps, and so you put that on, put it over, just bring it down over your head, line up your eyes, and then twist the knob in order to. Uh, in order to tighten it back up. And it really is a massive improvement, because one of the problems I had with the original 5 was getting my getting the actual display to line up with my eyes in the sweet spot so that I wasn't getting chromatic abrasion and, and blurriness. Yeah, you end up spending more time trying to get it on the back of your head than you do getting it on your eyes. And when you got the back of your head, you have to sort out your eyes, and then you do that, and it moves the back of your head. Exactly. Yeah. I know, I know what you mean. 
another part of the show um, where I, I attended the pre-brief and uh, Huawei had a keynote was that they are launching the Mate 10 Pro into the US market. This was kind of half. This was kind of half expected anyway, um, except that we were also expecting them to have a major carrier announcement with it because. In the US, if you don't have a major carrier announcement, it's very hard to break into the market. And Huawei's tried to break into the market a couple of times now. So yeah, like this was supposed to like be like a big announcement for Huawei because that would have been like so AT and AT and T was planned to be the first carrier of the Mate 10. Yeah, but um, so and already Huawei had advertising all over Las Vegas. With yeah. huge billboards and everything. Ready to go with Ready the, to go with the AT&T and logo. And unfortunately, like, it got cancelled on the last minute from AT&T, so they backed back. And that was it, supposedly because the FCC got pressured by... Who knows? The, the, who knows? Some, somebody in the US government. And they basically said to AT&T, please don't yeah. carry this phone. And of course... Huawei. So the CEO during the keynote, he went off script at the end, and he actually did a very heartfelt rant on the state of the US carrier and mobile markets, because basically it's right now quite unique in the world, because 90% of all the phones sold in the US are sold through carrier channels, whereas in Europe, China, or Japan, I guess, most of the phones actually sold unlocked in shops, and you out, outright buy it. Yeah. But still in the US, the carriers have immense power in deciding what consumers are even able to buy. And this decision basically by AT&T, as Huawei's CEO explained it, and I agree, is basically damaging and limiting consumers in the US. I mean... Huawei's goal is to be, you know, the number one smartphone provider, yeah, you know, yeah. and they sold what 160 million devices. Yeah, last so, so, year. so they're, they're, the, they're the number three smartphone maker in the world. Yep, and basically you can't buy them in the US. Yeah, so it, it's 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 something quite crazy. No, I mean, and, and it doesn't it doesn't make sense at all the explanation because ZTE is actually quite prevalent in the US. ZTE, yeah. ZTE in, in, in the lower end phones. And basically they are owned by the Chinese government. And they're free to partner with carriers. Yeah. And Huawei as a private company is not allowed. I mean, you, you can debate, you know, how Huawei is managed and what ties they have or whatever. I won't go into speculation to that because neither of us know. But yeah, it's, it's, for, for, for Huawei, end up sampling a lot of phones, a lot of press, so you may see um, significant content towards yeah. Huawei against, say, Samsung, which has their sampling program, and Apple have their sampling program. Um, so, I mean, they are trying to get their name out there beyond their traditional markets, beyond China, beyond Europe. Yes, so basically the plan right now is going forward is still going to try with another carrier, to see if they still can manage to introduce a Mate series Huawei phone in the US like that. It, it, it might be a case that and they have to go in the, the low end. No, no, I, I, no. What they're going to do is, like, they're still going to try to... So Huawei has been on the rise over the last few years. Yep. 
at a dr- dramatic rate, which we saw like no other yeah. smartphone. What they're gonna do is like they're gonna try to improve the phone lineup yeah. every single year until at some point the carriers basically have to carry it, otherwise they're just gonna lose more users to unlock devices sold through other channels. It's. It, I, I mean, I know they they've just hired recently in the last few uh, few months the former head of uh, Samsung uh, mark, uh, VP marketing to head up the US, uh, and she has uh, bought brands like uh, Motorola and Nokia to the US. So she knows the market very well. She knows how to introduce products to the market very well, and she's kind of got one hand tied behind her back already. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And speaking of smartphones, um, we got briefed before Christmas on a new fingerprint technology. And, and I know, Andre, you had a chance to go uh, play with it. Yeah, so what we're talking about here is Synaptic's new in-screen fingerprint sensor. So what they do is it's basically like a CMOS sensor, like the ones you find in, camera, in cameras. Um, and it's integrated beneath the display and it actually sees your fingerprint through the display and the display illuminates your finger and the CMOS sensor behind the screen so it's, can read out the fingerprint. It's it's almost like a camera that looks through the display, Yeah. but the display has to light up around your finger in order to yeah. get the reflection yeah. back onto the sensor. Yeah, so in theory, works well. In practice, works well. So... Quite surprising. It works as expected. So I, 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 I mean, they're, 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 very honestly, I can't say anything against it. And of course, the first phone which implements this is a new uh, model from Vivo, so Chinese big Chinese company. They didn't actually fully announce the specifications on the on the model and when it's going to be available, but they were the first to actually demonstrate this technology. No, normally when that happens, uh, the demo units in Synaptics booths have the uh, the logo of the company they're using with the hardware. Yeah, uh, with a sticker over it, so you can't tell. And so, so it's a, like a typical higher end Vivo model. It's like the unit which I was playing with had a Snapdragon six sixty. It was quite large form factor, so like six six inches AMOLED screen, of course. And of course, like going back to the fingerprint sensor. The implementation is only possible with cooperation of the panel manufacturer, so in this case, Samsung. Right. Because the integration of the fingerprint sensor, basically what needs to happen is, like, it needs to be put into the screen by the panel panel manufacturer. Right. So that is quite a complex uh, supply chain. Yeah. But it also means that, well, when you have the fingerprint sensor inside the screen, you don't need to have a physical home button on the front or, if, you know, like an Apple device or a fingerprint yeah. sensor on the rear um, next to the camera like a Samsung device. Correct. It, it makes sense with the trend towards having these full screen displays yeah. that eventually most, if not all, high-end smartphones are going to pr- probably go this way yeah. unless they keep the fingerprint on the rear, I guess. So I think like the only really negative thing is like the area itself of the fingerprint sensor is maybe a bit too small at the moment. Right. I, I, I think the sensor itself was like around five by eight millimeters, 
I'm not sure exactly. But it, de- it did seem a bit small, so you really have to, like... Well, yeah. oh, of course, when you register your fingerprints, you have, like, the 30 different... Uh, positions. Positions. Yeah. So that's fine. But you still kind of have to hit the center. And when you've got a six, in, when you've got a six, six, six inch phone, trying to make sure you hit the right five point. Yeah, five I mean, in terms of accuracy of the sensor itself, I I, I didn't have any false uh, registrations. The problem is like you just have to really hit the hit the middle, and compared to traditional fingerprint sensors, which we've seen like on the back of Huawei phones, Pixel phones, yeah, those are quite bigger. Yes. So that's less of an issue. Uh, I mean, this is the first generation. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the first generation, so it is quite a break, breakthrough technology, which we've been awaiting for like more than a year. So, so what you're saying is, I can finally have an iPhone X with Touch ID back, perhaps. Uh, you know, Face ID is now the future. The future for Apple. So, who knows? Ah, shucks. <laughs> um. Now, uh, I mean, b- b- before we did this podcast, we had a list of things we wanted to say about the internet things. Now, you you had another thing for Synaptics. Um, yeah. Which and, is kind of a bit esoteric to just a product. So, but. yeah, like, browsing around in the Synaptics booth, of course, everybody expected the fingerprint sensor. But what was more of a surprise to me, which kind of fell through the cracks in the news, is that they actually now have, like, uh, a commercial AMOLED, I mean OLED, uh, DDI, DDIC. So, DDIC meaning like display driver controller driving the actual OLED panel. So, until now, Samsung has had like a major lead of several years in that area. So, when people talk about OLED devices and OLED panels, there's two components. There's the panel itself and there's also the DDIC which you need to control the panel with. Um, so is is this just a case of nobody else had a DDIC except Samsung, the, or is there the, the, a there was another there, there was another company like another Korean company called Magnachip, which Samsung dual sourced back in the in the S three days. Okay, and but basically they dropped them for their own DDICs because they invested a lot more. Yeah, and basically Magnachip couldn't keep up in in terms of features and technology. So yeah, until now, the two big vendors of OLEDs, so there was Samsung and there was LG. Yeah. So LG, the first OLED screen, I think it was three years ago in 2015 in the LG Flex. Yeah. And then uh, the next LG Flex 2. And nowadays, of course, we know we have the Pixel Pixel 2 XL. Yeah, with an OLED screen yeah. and the LG V30. Um, the biggest. Yeah, so they all use Samsung DDICs with they, no, they they use something else. I don't know exactly what they use. Maybe an LG implementation or maybe some other but third party DDIC vendor. But here's the thing: like, there's been like a lot of controversy in regards to the Pixel screen and the V30 screen. Um, so there's two reasons for that. First of all. It's the panel quality, so when you do the OLED emitter vapor deposition, you need to have like the latest Canon Toki machine, yeah. which there's only like 10 produced per year, and Samsung buys like 9 of them. <laughs> so LG, of course, 
is production limited on the newest technology for actually producing the panels. So that's one reason. So you just have a panel which just uses all the technology in terms of pr production. The second reason is the DDIC. So the problem with the V30 and the Pixel 2XL is at lower brightness, it gets very washed out and the colors just seem weird and there's black crush. And basically that's a re the reason for that is the DDIC because well, it, it cannot control the brightness based on PVM. It's does it purely through voltage. I mean, and, and, that, and, and the big differentiating factor of Samsung OLED panels over the last few years is that they do control the OLED brightness through, through PVM and they call it like uh, smart dimming. Yeah. And big surprise, of course, for me today was like Synaptics has now like a new OLED DDIC, which has the same feature. And it's just ready for... And it's already ready. It's sampling sampling right now. And already, they didn't say who, but there's already some smart smartphone vendors who are working on implementation. So what this means is over the next year, year or two, we're going to see a lot more OLED devices with panels besides from Samsung, which are going to be much higher quality. And support more screen-related features through the DDoC, like dimming. Yeah. 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 It's good to hear. So basically, this is like going to be a big raise in terms of screen quality for third-party par third panels besides Samsung. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, moving on, I want to talk about uh, a couple of things that I saw. Um, first up, uh, I want to talk about A-Data. Now, um, one of these... I mean, as a show this year, CES, there's been very few sort of breakthrough uh, technology moments this year. Everything has kind of been sort of iterative. Um, but one of the things that kind of caught me by surprise was A-Data. Um, so A-Data, you know, they make SSDs, they make storage, they make memory. And it turns out they now make M.3 drives. M.3? <laughs> exactly. What the hell is an M.3 drive? What's that, Ian? <laughs> I, it's, it's, I, you know, so A Data was one of my last meetings this week, and I kind of had a glimpse that some other people had seen something, and I was wondering what, what, what was going on, so I went over and I saw, hey, that's an M.2 drive. No, wait, the connector is slightly different. Wait, that, 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 uh, that list of specs says M.3. What's M.3? Um, Turns out it's the next generation form factor for PCIe SSDs, which also has um, hot swappable features. Um, they were showing it in a new drive up to two terabytes, and they were also showing it in a dual processor, one new server with um, 36 of these M.3 um, removable bays. And this was meant to be a server built by AIC for um, 5G high-speed networks. Um, and they said, hey, you have 36 drives here put in, and each drive can have up to 8 terabytes um, if they were built that way. Um, now, obviously, with 36 drives, each taking four PCIe lanes, um, you can't do that with uh, the two process processes they had in the one new, so they had... PCI switches to manage it all, 
Um, I asked them to pop off the PCI switches, uh, the heat sinks, to find out what models they were, but they wouldn't let me. Um, otherwise, I'd end up breaking a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar system. But yeah, you know, M dot three hot sw- hot swappable NGFF. Whether it's coming to consumers, who knows? At the minute, it seems like a very enterprisey play. It's you know combating against ruler form factor. But actually, that's interesting because that ruler form factor and um, the server that a data had on display was apparently designed for Samsung's five G efforts. I have absolutely no idea. I took a lot of pictures. I'm basically going to shove it in front of uh, Billy Tallis, our storage editor, and say, please tell me what this is. (laughs) You're the one that does the research. Please tell me. Um, But we'll see what that matters. ADATA actually had another slightly mini thing. Um, They had a memory module that was encapsulated in Perspex, and they were using that non-conductive Novec M3 fluorinert liquid. To help, so it was essentially a bare PCB with chips on, and a Perspex thing around it, and you know, like a spoonful of this fluorinert stuff, yeah, to help cool it, um, and you know, just to add insult to injury, RGB LEDs. Well, of course, RGB LEDs. What doesn't have RGB in it these days? It's um, you know, they, they they called it their project jellyfish, and they were just seeing how people would react to it. Um, <laughs> I, I did. They actually had the Novec M3 non-conductive liquid spec sheets out uh, they didn't tell me exactly which one it was but you know it had connectivity it had um you know uh mass per unit volume and boiling point uh freezing point and everything like that i have a picture i need to go through it um but i remember 10 years ago when they used to use that stuff to you know just sort of showcase mini pcs we've seen it in the last couple of years showing off servers now i i was under the impression it was under it was a cost of about $300 per gallon for this stuff, uh, which for a server makes it expensive. For a memory module makes it, you know, a bit cheaper. Um, and then I was told, actually, no, the price is now $100 per litre. That's not really an improvement. No, it's yeah, not. That's, that's the same price. It's, so. uh, it's yeah. Um, so let's, uh, that it was literally a prototype and it was like, hey, what do you think? Um, we might see that more in uh, Computex in six months. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, um, and we'll probably end the podcast just after this, is uh, a technology I, uh, that's you know we showed last year, but this year is the second gen is actually really nice. It's from iBuyPower. It's called their Snowblind system. So this is so iBuyPower is a um, system integrator in the US, and what they've done is they've worked with Intel to essentially put a transparent monitor inside the side panel of your PC. So you literally can have your desktop on the side of your PC and instead of uh, instead of using... So it has sort of a backlight around the edge. Um, anytime, you know, any of the pixels are white, it just makes the display transparent. So you can see, so you can see through into the components of the case. Um, the idea here is that, you know, you can put a logo on, you can, when you're showing your PC off, you're not exactly going to be playing games on it, but, you know, as, as uh, they said, they can do this, uh, display technology on almost any size panel. Um, they, they, they had it on a, you know, an ATX case and it was 1280 by 1024 pixels, but with the second gen, it was brighter, it was sharper and yeah, it's. If you want to look at how the chassis industry has evolved over the last 10 years, um, aside from RGB, what major 
advancements has there been that have really been a major differentiating factor? Dual chamber, putting the power supply at the bottom, you know, toolless, anything, nothing like that seems to come close to having a display in the side panel. Technically, wouldn't the display count as a form of RGB? (laughs) 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 Yeah. But yes, you're right. It's, you want, I'm not even going to call it quite an interesting concept because I don't fully get it. I, outside of, say, showing off a LAN parties, I don't see it would be that useful. But it is something different, and it's good that someone is trying something different. Um, uh, they, so they don't sell the panel by itself. They just sell it as part of a complete pre-built system. They mm-hmm. said that the panel um, costs about an extra 150 to $200 on the cost, which is fair enough because yeah, it's... Yeah, you're basically putting a monitor into a side panel. Yeah, and you connect it to one of your graphics cards, yeah. Um, but that was fairly interesting. And they said, hey, if you want to review one of our systems, let us know. And I'm thinking, hmm, what, edica- what editor can I send it to? And then I forget we don't have a systems editor. Um, but it would be it would be nice to have that sort of content on an Antec, I think. And this is me hinting at Ryan that we need to... <laughs> Find a systems editor. In due time. In due time. Um, so, th- I mean, this is this is CES. We do this every year. Um, and it's 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 Vegas. It's in the, the desert. Um, and companies try and act like it's a party, but it really is hard work. Uh, thank you guys for listening. A special shout out to all the ed- editors we have back at home. Uh, 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 Joe for helping lead our, uh, our news, Anton for just plowing through the news, and all the all the others, Gavin, Patrick, Ganesh, and Brett, Nate. and Nate. It's, you know... Billy. Actually, yeah, we pretty much have everyone working on CES. So. Yeah, I mean, thanks thanks to you guys for helping us get the news out and pointing us back to meeting rooms where we've forgotten to take pictures. Um, and I hope you guys have enjoyed all our CES coverage. Uh, thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Andre. Yep. Thank you very much, Ian. See you next time. See you at MWC. Yep, that's that's our next show, MWC. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening.